today I wanted to kind of follow on to what we've been talking about the, the last few weeks, but kind of put a little bit finer point on it because there's so much going on right now. In fact, um, yesterday, Marion and I were having a conversation and it just seems like, I mean, I think Marion got three phone calls in a row yesterday of people that are really in distress, people that are really going through it in one way or another, breaking down. Uh, I know that I've been dealing with several marriages that are breaking down and it just seems that, that there's so much just human anxiety and strife. And um, Marion was saying, does it seem like there's more to you now you know, than there, than there was before? What's going on? Is this stuff ramping up? And, and why is it ramping up? And You know, empirically, statistically, I don't know if there's more than there has been, but it sure seems like it. It seems like things are ramping up. And I think there's a reason for that. Um, I was thinking about the generations, the way the generations go. Uh, I'm a late baby boomer that's sometimes called Generation Jones. Have you heard of that? I'd never heard of that either. I was looking at Generation Jones. It's those who are born from like 55 to 65. So it's kind of late baby boom. But they call them Generation Jones because these people apparently feel that they didn't have the same opportunities that even their older brothers and sisters had, people 10 years older than them, by coming to age in the 70s that there was less opportunity, less this and less that. So they're always jonesing for something, you know? So they call them Generation Jones. But, uh, you know, if we want to break it down that fine, you know, I'm, I'm part of the boomer generation. My parents' generation was called the GI generation. And that stands for government issue or general issue. Sometimes it's called the greatest generation, at least since the mid-90s or so. But this is the generation that grew up during the Depression, born in the first early part of the century, grew up in the Depression in the 30s, and then came of age during World War II in the 40s. Now just think about what that must have been like. What was that like? I remember my father was just this rock-solid individual. I mean, he, you could, he was like Big Ben clock tower. I mean, he just was on time, taking care of every detail, always there. A little aloof and a little bit hard to get to know, but, but so, so solid. To have gone through the kind of difficulties that that generation went through, through the Depression and then followed on by World War II, and it's hard for us to even really imagine what life was like even in the States during World War II, with the rationing, with the deprivation, with families being torn apart, with the actual thought that America could lose this war. Has there been anything like World War II since where we actually thought that we could lose? Well, maybe now we're just starting to feel that way with a rogue country that can lob nukes over across onto our shores. But to really think that we could lose this war, the fear of that, buying government bonds and supporting the nation and doing everything that had all the women, what they had to do when the men folk were across the continents. It was such a different kind of time. History was providing for that generation, a rite of passage, a real trial by fire, which those who came through it with their selves intact had a substance to them, had a gravitas to them, had, had a balance to them that I don't know that any generation since has had the opportunity to develop at least historically and societally because 
right when you get into the 60s, we have the, the cultural revolution, the sexual revolution. We have the deconstruction, the postmodern, postwar deconstruction, basically of so many of our values and so many of our institutions that it's been a very different experience starting with our generation, my generation at least. And then when you move on from the baby booners to what they call uh, Generation X and then to the millennials and then Generation Z, increasingly we've been living through a period of financial prosperity for the most part, lack of wars that affected our shores for the most part, and a breakdown of all the societal or cultural rites of passage that most cultures have had historically up until the modern era. A rite of passage is understood as a real separation from the normal world that we live in, the world of the child typically, moving into a time of transition, which includes some kind of pain, deprivation, difficulty, challenge, disturbance, disorientation, and then reincorporation, coming back into the community, but understanding more than we did before we left. Where is that mirrored anywhere in our society? And if history isn't providing it for us, now as the world seems like it's starting to spin out of control, now when all these things are moving up to a fever pitch, where politics are so polarized, religion is so polarized, where rogue nations have a global capacity for destruction, where the future finally is going in the other direction where the American dream always left the succeeding generation better off than the generation before. Now it's starting to go the other way. Where young people look out and say, hey, is there really a future here? Is there something that's going to be there for us? And there isn't that grounding. There isn't that, that, that rite of passage that took us as a culture, as a society, and especially our younger people, to a place where we can deal with these things. To have a way of processing the pain, to process the unknowing, the uncertainty in a healthy way. And so what we're seeing is this complete rise in, in uh, mental ailments, disturbances, anxiety, depression, addiction. All these things are cropping up in a way that, is it more than it was before? Is it just reported more than it was before? You know, it's so hard to know these things. But I think as as we do our counseling work here, as we do what we do here, it seems like we're seeing more and more of these kind of ailments. And the question is, how do we deal with it? Our society is not providing us with the tools that we need. And unfortunately, history may provide us with some trials by fire that we're completely unprepared for in the latter parts of our lives. But most importantly for me is that the church is not providing for us the kinds of rites of passage, the, the, the spiritual journey as the ancients understood it that could really take us where we need to go as people of faith. By and large, culturally, the church is focused more on prosperity. It's focused on the avoidance of pain. In fact, with these recent storms, I don't know if you've been following, the, following Irma, it's just incredible what's happening in Florida, uh, right on the heels of Harvey in Texas, and then the earthquake in Mexico. There's been lots of, of emails coming around and floating around, and you may have seen some of them, where people are talking about that this is lining up with end times prophecy, that the cumulative disobedience of us as a nation is causing God's wrath to be poured out on us in these various natural disasters and other things that are going to befall 
our country and the world. And it's, I suppose, tempting to look at things that way. You know, when we see some of the breakdown of our culture and our society and then we see these things happening in such a string. But we need to stop and think about what it is we're saying when we say something like that. Is God really angry? Is God wrathful? Does he pour out these types of disasters as punishment for disobedience? Because the flip side of that is we just have to obey. We have to come back to God's law and obey and then God will pour out his blessings on us once more and withhold these punishments. But is this the God that Jesus is talking about? See, this right gets right to the heart of it. And when we get fearful, when the world starts to get crazy, when we haven't been prepared, we're naturally going to try to crawl into the walls of some sort of fortress. And I think that's what we're doing. I don't know for sure, but when I look at Jesus, when I look at what he lived and what he said and what he did, how in the world is God a wrathful or angry God? Does God really need to be angry? If we as human beings can deal with small children... And when they do things, we don't get angry. We just realize they have to be trained. We have to keep them alive long enough so that they can get the principles and be able to save themselves. You know, we don't necessarily get angry unless we're having a bad day ourselves, but that's saying more about us than them, isn't it? Jesus on the cross, hanging on the cross, with the kind of abuse that was hurled on him, the injustice of everything that he was going through, the humiliation of that type of public death, didn't get angry. He just said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And if you think about Jesus teaching us all throughout, telling us, you know, don't even resist an evil person. If they slap you on your right cheek, present the left cheek as well. If they ask for your cloak, give them your tunic as well. Love the enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. You see, There is a very different thing at work here in the New Testament if we really take a look. And Jesus said, I and the Father are one, and everything that I do is only because the Father does it through me. Do we really serve this angry, wrathful God? And then the flip side of that is, if we obey harder, does God bless us more? That is such a corrosive idea. It tears at the heart of everything that Jesus is talking about in terms of his good news. If our behavior, if our performance is the standard by which we are blessed, accepted or not accepted, blessings are poured out or withheld, then we're right back on that meritocracy system. We're right back on earning our way. And this is everything that the New Testament stands against. You've got to be careful about things we say. But, you know, as we take a look at this, what is the antidote? What is another way of looking at life that can take us through this? No one wants to go through these difficulties when they come in life. And to be honest with you, I don't know what I would, how I would react if my house was a pile of rubble because a tornado or an earthquake came through. That would be a very difficult thing for me and my family. I hope I would react well. I hope I would be able to pull through. But I don't know until I'm in it. But whether I do it well or not does not make the principles untrue. The principles, I think, are grounded here. All ancient Jews and Christians always pointed to a life journey that had two halves, two parts to it. There was the first half, and then there was a transition that moved us into the second half. 
And that transition was the difficulty. These people in Texas, I'm telling you, there's something about that state, the way they pulled together, the way they worked in their communities together. Heard a story of of a... a man who owned a mattress store. And he sent his delivery trucks out into the water to pick up people and bring them back to his store. And he let them all sleep on his mattresses and barca loungers and whatever else he had in the store. And there were so many stories like that. Yeah, there was the looting and everything too. But these people who rebuild and come out of that disaster won't be the same people that went into it. They won't be the same people they were before. This is going to change them fundamentally if they actually move through this with a sense of community, with a sense of purpose, with a sense that God's Spirit is still alive and strong in their community. These people will never be the same. That's the transition that takes us to the second half of life. Ancient literature showed this as well. I don't know how many of you are ancient literature freaks like I was and am, but you know, the story of Odysseus and the Odyssey is a classic example. Odysseus coming back from the Trojan War, and it takes him ten years of all these different adventures and being blown off course and the gods against him and all these things happening before he finally can make it back to his beloved island of Ithaca, back to his queen Penelope, back to his son Telemachus. But when he lands at Ithaca, it's not all sunlight and, and, and promises. He has to fight his way through the suitors and the people that have taken over his castle and taken over his kingdom, right? He goes through this. But when he does, and he reestablishes himself and he reveals himself to his people and he's reunited with his queen, it sounds, sounds like that's the climax. That's the end of the story, isn't it? But no, there's more. And it feels like an anticlimax. It feels like the story should have ended here. But then Odysseus goes out into the outskirts of his island to find his father Laertes, and he has to fight more battles and finally come to a complete full circle and around again. If that's too esoteric, how about Lord of the Rings? You know, when Frodo comes all the way through all of that stuff that he goes through for three books and he gets back to the Shire, shouldn't that have been the end of the story? But it's not. He has to fight more battles. He has to fight more problems. He has to deal with trying to reinsert himself into a life that isn't his anymore. He came back a different person. And then finally, he gets on the boat with the elves and he goes off into something that we can't even comprehend. It was amazing to me as I was doing some research on this how many people didn't understand and had no clue about the ending of Lord of the Rings. There's whole pages devoted to trying to figure out what does that mean? Why does he have to get on the boat? What's going on here? It makes me kind of sad, you know? And culturally, we're no longer even, we don't even have a clue what this further journey is all about, why it's there and why it's absolutely the whole point of the story. The main part of the story, the first journey, is just a setup. It's just the foundation for taking this second journey. It's absolutely critical, and yet it feels like an afterthought. It feels like an anticlimax. It feels like something that didn't need to be tacked on to us because we're no longer aware. Our churches are no longer teaching us the fullness of this journey and what it's all about. The shape of Jesus' life is exactly the same. Shouldn't the 
crucifixion and the resurrection been the end of the story, the big climax. But then there's more. He's doing more. There's more things happening because there's another part of the story. And of course, it isn't finished when he ascends into heaven either. There's still more of the story going on. It's going to take us a complete change, a complete transition of thought to start to understand that there are two halves to the story. The first half is outward. It's building things. It's developing an identification, an identity that is connected to all the accomplishments and the things that we do. But when that runs its course, when we're actually hit with difficulties and tragedies and loss, that everything that we have built so far can't deal with, can't cope with. We're faced with a choice. Are we willing to move forward into the second journey, which is a journey within, no longer outward, but within, one that connects with what has always been there and has always sustained us, but that we couldn't see when we were so focused on the first part of the journey. This is what our churches should be preparing us to face, to move through, to engage, to celebrate, so that when things come, like hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes, that we're not crying out and raging against God and the universe and the cosmos, why these things befell us, but we can see them for what they are. They're the platform and the opportunity to move through to deeper connection. So, what's this transition to the second journey like? What does it feel like? What can we compare it to? And I, and I love that you know, Jesus said, what's the kingdom like? What can I compare it to? You know, he's always saying, what can I compare it to? You, you can almost see his wheels turning. He's sitting there trying to get this across. He can see that the light bulbs are not going on over the people said, okay, now what? What can I compare it to? What can I say? The kingdom of heaven is like this then. It's like that. Last week I talked about when I was uh, <laughs> on the football team, but not really playing football, riding the bench and, uh, back in high school. And uh, when I got to go out and play in a scrimmage, in, you know, inter-team scrimmage, and, and just practicing and, and seeing what I could do, that I had the sensation that I knew exactly what to do in terms of the play in the playbook. You know, I'm, I'm Mr. Brain, intellectual. So I knew the whole playbook. I had it memorized backwards and forwards, and I knew exactly what to do until I got the ball, and it was up to me to put it in the end zone. And then I had no idea what to do anymore. It's like, what do I do now? There's no more play. Where's the instructions? Where's the guide? You know, it's not there. And really, the play begins where the playbook ends. That's really the key, isn't it? Many players can run a play. What do you do after the play ends? And it's up to you. Can you be present enough? Can you see downfield enough? Can you just see everything as some sort of tableau with a, a path through and go there? C- can you think that fast? Can you move? Can your body do what your mind is? All those things, those intangibles that the great players can do. Well, maybe then, what else can I compare it to? Maybe it's like a musician. It was funny, we did this Enneagram workshop there, and they did something interesting at the beginning of the, of the workshop. They had everybody go through and around and introduce themselves, which is not so unusual, but they had them also, not just all of us, not just give our name, but also our place of birth, which I thought was kind of odd at first, because place of birth, actually it was fascinating to see where everybody was born. We didn't have one woman from Casablanca, Morocco, 
which was very cool. But then they asked us to go ahead and say something. What was our driving passion? What was something that we really loved? And then to give a word that was associated with that passion that other people may not know because it's something esoteric. And when it came my turn, I found myself saying, I love jazz. I love jazz music. And the word associated with that for me is improvisation. Because the hallmark of jazz is that it jumps off the written page. What makes jazz jazz is the improvisation. It's starting with the written page and then moving completely beyond it. And not just the soloist, but every single player has moved off the written page. Whatever chords you have to work with in the written page, everybody is improvising and taking it to this place that is so incredible. When you've got players that can do that, jazz begins where the written music ends. The play begins where the playbook ends. What else can I compare it to? How about a cook? Trying to get as many connections here as possible. Most of you probably cook or have tried to cook. And what do you do? You go to the, to the cookbook, you get the recipe, and you follow the recipe. And when you're first learning how to do things, or like I do, I have to follow the recipe slavishly. Okay, it's two cups, and so I have to measure that cup so that you know an atomic clock could not tell the difference between the ingredients. Just get that right and pour that in and do this, and you're looking at the book, and you're doing this and doing that, you know, and you finally get whatever it is that you get out. How about those cooking shows, those competition cooking shows, where they bring these cooks in, and they give them like a, a mystery basket, and it's got a cabbage in it and a snicker bar and kite string, and they're supposed to make a meal out of that. Have you ever seen those guys? Now that's cooking, you see. What do you do when you just have ingredients, and you have a kitchen, and you're supposed to make a meal. You're supposed to make a feast. See, cooking really end, begins where the recipe ends. If you're really going to be a cook, if you can really understand the principles behind cooking, behind music, behind the sports, then everything starts when you stop thinking about it. Everything starts where the rules end. And actually, it's outrunning the rules that take us where we really want to go with all of this. Moving beyond the rules, moving beyond the plan, moving beyond the law into the unknown, right? Improvising on principles. This is where it gets exciting. This is where it gets fun. The great irony of the church is that it's teaching us and telling us and scaring us, frightening us into going back and following the rules. Just follow the rules. If you just follow the rules, then the earthquakes won't come. If you just follow the rules, then our country will be blessed again. It's telling us to go back to the rules. And yet Jesus and every ancient spiritual master that was worth his or her salt realizes that you only see God's blessings as you outrun the rules, when you move beyond the rules. That's when God's blessing becomes apparent. When we move out into the unknown, when we move out into those places where we don't know what we're going to do anymore and things still get done, when we don't see how something is going to actually function and it does, and we realize that we had only a very small amount to do with that functionality, with that thing happening beyond showing up, then we can start to celebrate. We can start to play with God's Spirit. But if we're stuck 
slavishly following rules and thinking somehow by doing this paint-by-numbers set we're going to get Da Vinci's Mona Lisa and it doesn't happen and we know something's missing. Where is the teaching that's going to take us through to something deeper? Where we can graduate and transcend the rules, become the rules, have the rules written on our heart rather than slavishly following them. And Jesus is all over this. Take a look at Matthew 5. The whole back end of Matthew 5, and I encourage you to go to Matthew 5 and read that chapter. And you can start right here with verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Okay, so Jesus is first saying, I'm not here to abolish the law, I'm here to fulfill it. The question is, how are you going to fulfill the law? He's obviously pointing to that there's some lack here, there's something that's not going on in the people's lives. And yet I'm not going to abolish the law, I want to fulfill it. And then he says, until heaven and earth pass away, the smallest letter or stroke, not the smallest letter or stroke, shall pass until all is accomplished. And for us it sounds like a return to all the rules again when we read that in English. But here's where Aramaic comes to our rescue again. The word in Aramaic for, that is translated as pass away is a bar. And a bar literally means to cross, cross a threshold or to cross a boundary. That's what passing away means. You know, when we say that someone has passed, someone has passed away, they've crossed a boundary. They've crossed a threshold. It's used in that exact same sense. So until heaven and earth cross boundaries, move beyond themselves, and actually merge together, the law is relevant. The law is absolutely necessary but only until or as long as. When heaven and earth are separated, when the complete unity and connection of God's domain and the complete disparity and, and individual form and function that we deal with in the details of our lives on earth, when those are separate, the law is necessary. The law is necessary to keep communities together, to keep us moving in a track that is not so destructive that we can't function. But as soon as we merge the two, either in ourselves or in our community, what need is there of law anymore? Augustine said, love God and do as you please. Exactly the same idea. Once you have merged the unity of God into the details and the form and function of your life, why do you need rules anymore? Life can give you cabbage in a snicker bar and string and you'll know exactly what to do with it because it's here now. It's part of you. And then Jesus gives examples. Verse 21. You've heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And he goes on and he illustrates that further in the rest of that passage. So people thought, if I just follow the rules, if I just don't murder, everything is cool. And Jesus is saying, no. You need to outrun those rules. You need to go beyond them because if you just have an angry thought, you're already guilty. Well, what in the world? He's not equating murder with the guilty thought, is he? No. But what he's saying is, this is about relationship. There's a key principle here in every one of these. And every one of them is really about relationship if you want to get down to it. 
But this is about relationship, and as soon as you've had that angry thought, the relationship has already been broken. It's already been compromised. And as you go down, he takes you down a string until you are absolutely eliciting physical violence and possibly murder. But this is about humility. This is about not seeing yourself as better than anyone else. Not seeing yourself as being worthy of being angry at another person, but seeing them connected with you and on the same plane as you, one with you. Jesus called it poor in spirit a few verses before in the Beatitudes. The principle is humility here. The goal is relationship here. And all of that happens only when we get past the written code, outrun the rules, and get out someplace further. Verse 27, you've heard it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And this goes beyond just noticing someone who's attractive. You know, It's running those tapes. It's moving your head down into those places. And Jesus says, once you've done that, you've already compromised the relationship. Once you've done that, your spouse likely already knows and is feeling that discomfort, feeling that disconnection, and your relationship is already compromised. What's the principle here that Jesus is looking at? Well, it's commitment, I suppose. It's loyalty. It's protecting and preserving our cherished relationships. And that happens beyond the rules beyond the code. At verse 38, you've heard it was said that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I'm saying to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat too. And whoever forces you to go one mile, go two. He's talking about forgiveness here. And even beyond forgiveness. He's talking about doing everything that we possibly can to forge these relationships, even with the people who oppress us, which leads us right into the next one. You've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And that is not a biblical rule, but it was a cultural rule. It's what the Pharisees had taught the people, right? Love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. It was what they did culturally. It was part of their, their uh, shame culture that they had. And Jesus is saying, but beyond that rule, beyond that code, is the acceptance that we're really after here, the acceptance that we're seeking. The law can only point toward, point toward these deep principles. It can't make them happen in our lives. It points to them. It points to these deep principles that actually define the intent of the law in the first place. Jesus is saying, absorb those principles. See what they are. See how they relate to every person that you meet. And then act accordingly. Once that happens, you're not thinking about the rules anymore. You're just living in relationship. Living in humility and forgiveness and acceptance and commitment and loyalty and all those things that make human relationships worth living and fulfill the purpose not only of the law, but of our whole existence here as human beings. As long as these obsessions live in us, there's going to be these kind of problems that we're going to need to deal with. Of course, the problem here then is how we handle all of this. How do we move through this? 
Does Paul give us any more information about where we can go? Take a look at Romans 7. Paul is setting up an analogy here, but he's really saying the same thing as Jesus. And I'm going to read this in the message version. It's in your bulletins, but it won't be on the screens. Because uh, good old Paul, he never really takes the shortest distance between two points. He kind of moves around. And so the message, I think, does a pretty good job of kind of locking this down for us. So Romans 7, what is Paul talking about at verse 2? He says, for instance, a wife is legally tied to her husband while he lives, but if he dies, she's free. Right? Makes sense? The marriage contract, the marriage covenant, only lasts as long as the spouses are alive. If she lives with another man while her husband is still living, she's obviously an adulteress. But if he dies, she's quite free to marry another man in good conscience with no one's disapproval. Now he's going to apply the analogy. So, my friends, in verse 4, this is something like what has taken place with you. When Christ died, he took that entire rule-dominated way of life down with him and left it in the tomb, leaving you free to marry a resurrection life, and bear offspring of faith for God. Do you see what he's doing here? He's saying the same thing that Jesus said when he was talking about Abar. The law is necessary. The law is good. The law is instructive. Only as long as there is this human dysfunction to deal with. So the way Paul puts it, as long as sin is alive in you, as long as the obsessions and the compulsions and the fear that drives us in dysfunctional ways is alive in us, then we are bound by the law to keep us moving in the right direction long enough to try to get the principles internalized. But once we do, then we don't need to follow the rules anymore because we will automatically be living the rules and living the law. This is what he's trying to get across to us. The law is relevant only as long as we don't have these principles at our fingertips. We don't have them in muscle memory. The law is the thing that makes community possible because we've got people at all different places in life. It keeps our civil society in place. But it can only take us so far Conforming to law can never transform us. It can't take us to where Jesus is going. And Paul illustrates this beautifully. I didn't have space to put it in your bulletins, but just listen. This is the classic Paul passage, right? He's stating the dilemma of trying to follow the law. At Romans 7.15, he says, What I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way, but then I act another, doing things I absolutely despise. So if I can't be trusted to figure out what is best for myself and then do it, it becomes obvious that God's command is necessary. But I need something more. For if I know the law but still can't keep it, and if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Parts of me covertly rebel, And just when I least expect it, they take charge. 
I've tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? Yeah, it is the real question. We can never do the law well enough to be good enough for God's approval. It doesn't work that way. We're always going to fall short of obedience. So why the law? What's up with the law? Paul says in Galatians 3, he says it perfectly, the law is a tutor. It's a tutor to bring us to Christ. I love that. The law is a tutor to bring us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. In other words, that we start to live by faith. The law is like training wheels on a bike. It's only there until we get our balance. Once we have our balance, they're only slowing us down, keeping us from doing what we can do on a bike. We need to jettison those things, graduate beyond them. Sometimes when we're raising small kids, it's just about keeping them alive long enough that they can get some of these things. You don't explain why they can't play in the street. You just don't play in the street. You don't touch the stove, ever. I don't have to explain it to you, son, but I'm going to keep you alive long enough so that you'll figure it out for yourself and you'll know what it is to do. The law is functioning the same way. It's keeping us alive long enough. It's keeping us in community long enough that we can graduate and move beyond. But it's not the law. If all we're doing is simple obedience, if all we're doing is rule following, we're operating on a very different principle than the principle of kingdom that Jesus is trying to give us. And if we continue to just operate in obedience, just pure obedience to rules, it's completely self-defeating. If kingdom is our goal. Why is that? Paul's going to tell us why. Take a look at Romans 8, verse 2. It's in your bulletins. A new power is in operation, he says. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a faded lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. And now, What the law code asked for, but we couldn't deliver, is accomplished as we, instead of redoubling our own efforts, simply embrace what the Spirit is doing in us. Those who think they can do it on their own end up obsessed with measuring their own moral muscle, but never get around to exercising it in real life. Those who trust God's action in them find that God's Spirit is in them, living and breathing, Obsession with self in these matters is a dead end. Obsession with self in these matters is a dead end. Attention to God leads us out into the open, into a spacious free life. Focusing on the self is the opposite of focusing on God. Anyone completely absorbed in self ignores God, ends up thinking more about self than God, and that person ignores who God is and what he's doing. Absolutely true. To focus on obedience is to obsessively focus on ourself, not God. We're focusing on everything that we do. We're trying to be good enough. Everything is turned here, looking at this. It keeps us looking down just at all the details and all the rules. It keeps us focusing outward on all the things that are impacting us. But to turn that around, to move with God, is to start to 
look up to the oneness, to the connection, to look within to God's Spirit that is already there. Same thing Jesus said about kingdom, because kingdom is everything we're talking about here. This focus on obedience does something else. It also either makes us guilty or it makes us entitled. But what it never does is make us grateful. Depending on how well we think we're doing, we're either guilty or we're feeling entitled. We've earned our place with God. But it's only when we start to focus on God, move beyond the rules, move into that place of not quite knowing, of uncertainty, of dealing with life's ingredients as they're presented to us and trying to build something that makes sense in kingdom, in Christ, then we realize how much of this is being done for us in concert with God's Spirit. Now we realize we've been given a gift that we could never give ourselves and the gratitude can start to take place. This is where Jesus is trying to take us. The first half of life that we're talking about here It's about dealing with our own efforts. It's about trying to build our lives, build our identity, build everything around us that makes us feel safe, that makes us feel like we have meaning and purpose. The transition comes in the wounding. The transition comes when the hurricane comes and blows all that stuff down. Everything we've so meticulously built up in our lives is now gone. Like those houses with all their stuff on the curb that they had to pull out because they were flooded. All that stuff that they built is on the curb. In that transition, you hit the crossroads. The choice of your midlife crisis. Do you move forward or do you double back, double down, and just work harder within your own efforts? Or do you move to the second half of life where you outrun the rules and move into this new space? Even when you think your life journey should be over and anything further is going to be an anticlimax because you've reached what you, goals you wanted to reach, there is a second part. And it's the whole point of life if we'll start to see what's going on here, what Jesus is showing us. Because the journey is going to move within. It's going to move in a completely different direction. Absorbing these principles into our very DNA that allows us to live. As I go forward... I guess my goal is to live like that football player. Starting off with a simple plan, a simple play. Center takes a snap, gives it to the quarterback, and then end comes around and the ball slaps against your chest and you've got it. But what are you going to do with it now? With the play done, with no more instructions anywhere, can we create that ballet downfield as we twist and turn and move and find that open place as the blocks come in and take us into a new spot? Can we create that without the rules anymore? I want to live like a musician who's given four chords to work with and you create a symphony out of that with everything that comes out of you and all the changes and things that you build on just those four chords. And I want to live like that cook who gets a head of cabbage and a snicker bar and kite string and can prepare a feast without any rules, without any recipe telling me what to do, but because I understand the principles that I can enter a moment 
and I can look and I can see what life is handing me in this moment. I get my cabbage, I get my snicker bar, I get my string, two hurricanes and an earthquake. And I know how to build kingdom out of that ingredient, out of those ingredients. Because we have been imbued with, we have been immersed in these kingdom principles enough that we no longer need to be told what to do. It comes out of us as we build kingdom in every single moment. Start thinking about how much you value obedience. Start listening to how much it is told to us to simply be obedient and then blessings will come. See how fear is playing into all of that mentality. And then go back to 1 John 4 where if you're living in fear, you are not perfected in love. We want to be perfected in love and we're only going to find that place when we outrun the rules. Let's pray. Well, first of all, Father, thank you for the rules. Thank you for the written page. Thank you for the law. Thank you for our church traditions that have built on those pages to give us a framework, to give us a structure, to give us a way through that can keep us alive long enough to find out what you're really trying to tell us. But Father, help us to see that the tools that have been given us are not an end in themselves and are meant to simply take us to another place. Help us not to fear what is happening in the world or what may be happening in our lives. And more importantly, help us not to fear you, thinking that you are doing these things for some reason that we can't understand. Help us to see every ingredient that life gives us in every moment as a transition into a deeper walk with you, a way of becoming changed from the inside out that we couldn't buy at any price. Thank you for everything you give us, Lord, every single moment. We can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's all stand.